invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1. Begin reading in verse 18. We'll read through chapter 2, verse 5. I don't, I'm confident we will not get that far, but it should be considered um, together and uh, fuller context of Paul's argument. Uh, of course, the fullest is the entire book couched in the context of Scripture in its entirety. But for this morning, I want to read verses 18 of chapter 1. No, I'm not. I'm going to start in verse 17. Misled you again to chapter 2, verse 5. I'll bring out the New King James Version, as is my custom. God's Word says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolishness the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. But of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that as it is written, He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. Well, we will continue this morning our study in 1 Corinthians into a very significant portion of Scripture that's going to occupy our time for some weeks as it's going to stretch into chapter 2 and uh, farther than just verse 5 that we read earlier this morning, but really much farther into Paul's development of what it takes to have a unified church what it takes to have a church um, that is glorifying to God. And that is of our primary concern this morning. Uh, Paul has stipulated it at the beginning and end of our Scripture reading that we want to have nothing known but Christ. That no other person gets elevated in the church called by Christ's name than he himself. 
Paul says, I didn't come to impress you with my presentation or my eloquence or my wisdom. I simply preached to you a very simple message. And if that message produced salvation in you, it is not to my glory or accolade. It is to God's. He concludes this portion of Scripture in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, and really up in chapter 1 as well, uh, repeating the statement that we want God to have the glory. For God to be glorified in a church, and we sang that this morning, right? We sang that little chorus, in our church, Lord, be glorified. Well, our passage speaks of how that happens. And it is not by the uh, loudness or precision of our singing. It is not by the amount in our offering. It is not by how many chairs are filled or empty. Um, it may be tonight, though. Tonight may be because... How many of you know what syncretism is? Big word. Syncretism is when you worship two things. Okay, and there's a lot of syncretism going on in our churches today. Um, I was refreshed um, a little bit earlier this week, or was it last week, when one of my uh, wife's co-workers asked for today off. And she said it's a religious holiday. At least she was honest to recognize that the Super Bowl is a religion. Okay, and it's a Super Bowl Sunday, it's a religious holiday. I have to have it off. Um, so there's a lot of syncretism going on in our churches today, um, which we know doesn't glorify God. Um, but when we come down to the foundation of how do we glorify God, make sure, guarantee that He is glorified in our midst, um, we come down to understanding uh, the juxtaposition, the, the, the com- contrast between the efforts of man and the efforts of God. Once we begin to comprehend that, which Paul's already started to introduce to the act of baptism, you know, was, was that an effort of man? Are, are men baptizing you? Or is it a reflection of the work of God in your life? We come now to this statement of wisdom. Let's contrast the wisdom of God and the wisdom of man. And Paul wants to do this not to... Um, confuse them or us and not to uh, develop um, some new idea of the knowledge of God, but rather to bring our attention to the fact of what it is that we are seeking after. It is not men's wisdom. What it is that we preach is not men's wisdom. And what it is by which we convince the world and it's not men's wisdom. We have long, too long thought that we should engage the world on their terms. And it, it is not to be done. Paul says, I didn't go and engage the world in their terms. And while we keep going back in, in many churches to the sermon in Athens on Mars Hill, um, I want to remind you that Mars Hill was not a success. It was a almost a complete disaster. As Paul engaged the philosophers, I want you to remember how it ended. They scorned him. Because when it came right down to it, even though he began where they were, he quickly drew them to Jesus Christ. And when he did so, he could not get around the power of the gospel, which is the resurrection. 
and the resurrection to the Greeks was foolishness. You believe somebody rose from the dead? Someone who died on a cross rose from the dead? And they, some wanted to hear more. Two or three believed, but by and large, most ignored it. And so while we have that one example that everyone keeps going to, we have a preponderance of Scripture that keeps calling us to a very simple message that is very counter the thinking of the world. And we are drawing them into a different kind of thinking that is radical and extremely radical in terms of everything else they are being fed from every other venue. Including other religious venues. And it is there that the gospel must be preached and it is there that the church must focus its attention that we are the followers of the resurrected Christ and the power of God and wisdom of God is at work in us and it is radical. And when we begin to understand that and grasp that, it ought to be evident to everyone around us in our lives. These people are radical. And a couple generations ago, we had some concepts of that radicality of Christianity that's out there. And... Um, even to this day, some people still refer you, oh, you're a freak or Jesus freak or whatever. Well, you know, and the, by the way, the hippie movement, the Jesus freaks were kind of, they didn't have really good knowledge of God's word, but they only understood one aspect, and that is love, without understanding the rest. And without the rest, we fail to be able to communicate the power of the gospel. So let's look at it here in our text. Well, let's go Lord prayer first. And uh, then we'll look into our text this morning. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you now for the opportunity to look into your word. Guide us in it, into your truth. Pray your spirit might have liberty to work with great power in our midst. So we might be surrendered people. Not trying to conform your word to our intellect, but to conform our thoughts to your word. It's not our natural tendency We pray that uh, it might occur in my heart, mind, as well as in each one listening, both here and in many other places. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We begin by looking at the message of the cross. And we are going to talk about foolishness and wisdom. We need to define those probably right away. Um, when we come to the idea of foolishness in Paul's writing, in terms of God, he'll use terms like the foolish things of God. Actually, it's singular. The foolish thing of God is literally what he's going to say. The foolish thing of God. When we come to that phrase in Scripture, and I think it's called foolishness is how they translate it, but literally the Greek says the foolish thing of God. It is singular. It is neuter. The the foolish thing of God of God. That there is one thing that is presented to the world that the world will consistently call foolish. And from our perspective, we look at that and we say that is the offense the world takes at our faith. And what is that foolish thing? Well, Paul introduces it right away. He says, it's the cross. It's the cross. It's the idea that our God humbled Himself 
and our world goes humbling yourself. Oh boy, that's not what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be exalting yourself. That's the way to get ahead in this world. Um, and that's what all of our lives have been about. And if you don't believe me, go to the nursery and work a little way time in there. And you'll find that no one had to teach them to exalt themselves. They do it very naturally, all by their lonesome. That their interests are greater than the interests of everyone around them. And they don't care if if this little person cries because you cocked them on the head and took their toy. The important thing is, I got the toy. And they walk away not concerned at all that this person is... Wah! By the way, the person crying is also only worried about themselves as well. And I didn't... And so we try to intervene and create fairness. So humility is not a natural thing to man. And so when God exercises it, we look at it and say, well, that's kind of weird. And then that humility isn't just to come and, and uh, uh, talk to us or come to uh, invite us into his house. It is much more substantial that is to come and die. And not just die heroically, but rather to die like a criminal. The cross is a criminal's death. And this is the foolish thing of God. That we look at that and say, why? Why would He do that? For the wise thing to do is that if these people hate you and, and are going to despise you and are going to rebel against you, um, the, the thing to do is to just get rid of them. Turn your back on them. Walk away. Go create another universe. Destroy this one. Start over. But God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Isn't that incredible? The cross is the foolish thing of God. And so it's the message of the cross that the world looks at and says that's foolishness. The idea that the supreme being would come and become man and suffer cruelly by those that he created, that he could destroy by a word, by a breath. And he died for them. We are not capable of really comprehending that kind of love. Oh, we can brush up against it occasionally in our familial relations and things like that, but Rare, even then, are those occasions. But nothing to this liking. And yet it is the power of God to save. What the world calls a foolish thing. The Bible says it's the power of God. That Christ Jesus' death and that alone um, is the focal point and the foundation of the church. It is our message, the cross, this gospel, this good news. And it is therefore that which creates this harmony amongst us because we are not exalting ourselves. We're exalting the one who has, and following the example of the one who has totally abased himself to the point of death on a cross. And so to us who are being saved, it says, this is the power of God. 
And this is our message. And we're going to look at it a little bit. But first we want to take our message and, and look at the alternative. We have this very powerful message, the foolish thing of God, which is the cross. The death of His Son on Calvary's cross, His burial, His resurrection, ascension is all wrapped up in this concept of the cross. But Paul wants to take a little time aside and say, let's talk about what the world's got. Let's talk about what they call wisdom. They're calling us fools. And if you are presenting Christ and you are representing Him and you are uh, identifying yourself as a believer in the world, um, it'll come around that you'll be called a fool for listening to that. And whether it be, um, oh, you know, you're ignoring, whether it be in the scientific realm, you're ignoring scientific evidence and you're a fool. How can you ignore all this evidence that's out there? And um, we can, again, argue with them those points. Uh, we can go out there into um, the the financial world and say, well, here's the biblical principles. Well, you're a fool. You're giving away, you're just giving away 10% without, I mean, you're not hardly even scraping by and yet you're giving to the Lord this stuff, this, the Lord. Um, and you know that there are out there people out there taking advantage of that kind of giving and, and, um, and there are, by the way. And that's nothing new. It's been around since the beginning of the church. Uh, and they'll go right through it. Your family life. Oh, you're gonna you're gonna submit to your husband. That's that. I would never do that. You see, the world looks at the Christian experience and says, "Not for me." Why? It's not because they look at you and see your misery, because they don't. And that's the. <laughs> Oxymoron to it all. They'll sit there and call your ways foolish if they want the joy that comes with your way. But they don't want to live it out. And why I find many within the church itself also having that attitude. I want the joy of the Lord, but I want it without obedience to God's Word. And it doesn't work. No such thing exists. The joy of the Lord comes by absolute surrender to His absolute truth. That when I give myself to it and I'm going to live this out in my home, I'm going to live it out in my workplace, I'm going to live it out in my checkbook, I'm going to live it out in my thought life, I'm going to live this thing out. Then comes this wonderfulness that is so attracting to the world. But as soon as we start talking about our life, they go, ooh, really? You do that? My kids found this little video on YouTube where about homeschoolers and the stereotypes that are out there. One of them is, ooh, you have to go, you go to church that many times a week? Ooh. You see, the world will look at these things and call them foolish. So what does the world call wise? Well, Paul wants to engage in that and he says, um, here's what the world thinks, but here's what God's done to the world. And it really, he draws from one scripture in verse 19. He draws from another scripture. I want to go there. Isaiah chapter 29. Isaiah chapter 29. We have um, a great passage that is more than just the one verse. I, want, I really would like to read the entirety of the chapter um, to see some of the foundation. The verse is, that's quoted for us is the is the last part of verse 14. Um, and it's a fascinating thing. God says, I'm going to do a marvelous work, 
we might look at this verse and say, well, this isn't a marvelous work. Yes, it is. God said it was. In verse 14, Therefore, behold, I will again do a marvelous work among this people, a marvelous work and a wonder. What is the wonder? The wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. That's a wonder of God? Oh, yes. Let's back up and look at what was going on here. Um, if you want to back up to the, the city of Jerusalem is the focus here. The people of God are the focus. Um, and there's going to be punishment and there's going to be foes. There's going to be all kinds of issues going on. Um, and I, I love verse 8. We're going to pick up in verse 8. It says, It shall even be as when a hungry man dreams. And look, he eats. But he awakes and his soul is still empty. <laughs> or when, or as when a thirsty man dreams. And look, he drinks. But he awakes and indeed he is faint. And his soul still craves. So the multitude of all the nations shall be who fight against Zion, Mount Zion. What a wonderful thing. A description of the wisdom of men. It's a dream. It's an illusion. They have created these systems of thought and belief and that's what they genuinely are, as much as they want to deny it. They are a system of belief. I don't care if you're an atheist or agnostic or everything else, um, whatever ism you want to hold to, it is, they're all systems of belief. And they create these things and they're all illusions. And God recognizes it. And He says, you know what, it's, they're, they're just like they're dreaming. And like a hungry man goes to bed and he's dreaming, oh, you know, prime rib and, Twice, you know, and he's just dreaming all this food up and his mouth's even watering. And uh, he sees it in his dream and he takes and eats of it. But then he wakes up and he's hungrier than ever. Because there's nothing satisfying in it. In the end, when he awakes out of his dream life, there is nothing in anything that he was imagining. Anything that his mind was conjuring up was there any substance? And we need to understand that the world is very active in conjuring up this stuff because they're so hungry. They want something. They know they need something to hold on to. Even if they claim, well, I hold nothing. Um, well, nihilism is something too. Won't get you very far, but it's basically saying I'm willing to be hungry. I enjoy being hungry. They want to lie to themselves. But why do men conjure these things? And why are they so active and, and so and so adamant about it? Because when the dream is over, and they're really faced with the facts around them in their own life, in their own heart, and they are slapped awake, what do they find out? They're totally dissatisfied. I've used this example before. If we look at the philosophers, since Paul's going to talk about Greek philosophy and how they, they love talking about wisdom. I mean, they, I mean, they just, it was their pastime. It was their form of entertainment, um, to create these systems of thought. And of course, we have born out of that, um, things that have lingered along, uh, Plato, Aristotle, things like that. And, uh, what we uh, fail to often realize is that in the end, every one of those philosophers was dissatisfied with his philosophy. And his pupils knew it. Why do you think Aristotle held the exact reverse of Plato? 
Aristotle was Plato's student. Because in the end, he saw that it was dissatisfying to Plato. So as much as this genius was trying to figure things out and, and contrive the world and the universe and how things work and, and to try to satisfy this need within him, it was a dream. And in the end, he woke up and Aristotle watched him wake up and says, well, if that wasn't it, then the opposite must be true. And so he created a whole new system of thought. Which, by the way, most of us are Aristotelian, not Platonic in our thinking. Science, evidence, it's all about the touch and the feel, my senses. That this is reality. And you can't deny your experience. If I experience it, it must be true. Come on. How many of you heard that? I've heard it. How many of you said that? Oh, Pastor, I saw it. It must be true. You're an Aristotelian. I contend with you there are many things I'll never see that are the most true. Not that I'm a Plato person either. And if you think the Eastern mystics got it right, guess what? I love. I shared this with the teens and they were blown away. Do um, you know that before the fat Buddha, there was a skinny Buddha? Right? That the fat Buddha was a result of watching the skinny Buddha. It was his student. He watched the ascetic Buddha who said we must deny the flesh, we must go through life and, and, uh, uh, impoverished and hungry and naked and, and we have to be the scourge of the earth and we have to walk around like that and if we mistreat this, then we'll reach this, this state of beingness that will fulfill us. And in the end, and all Buddha means is teacher, in the end, the skinny Buddha student looked at him and saw how unfulfilling it was and said, well... If it wasn't that, then we're going to go the opposite way. And now we have a fat Buddha. Indulge yourself in everything. Hence the... And by the way, we're more fat Buddhas than skinny Buddhas, aren't we? But you know what? In the end, that wasn't satisfying either. And you look through history and you see these quote-unquote great wisdoms of men. And we have it in our day too. That those will say, oh, I figured this out. Here's the evidence. And they put it forth. But it's smoke and mirrors to fool themselves. And God's Word says it's a dream. They have this hunger. They have this thirsting. But they have conjured this stuff up in their mind. And they have tried to lie to themselves and convince themselves it's true to the point that they think they actually are seeing it. They think they're actually eating and drinking it. They think they're actually satisfied. But then one day they wake up to the truth. And they're empty. And they realize it means nothing. This is not your work and mine to do in their life, to wake them up to the truth or to tell them it's all a dream. Paul says that's not what I'm about. I'm not here to convince them of their dream world is a dream world. It is God's work to do that. I'm not engaging them in this because the fact is, is that one day when they wake up and they realize the emptiness that is in their life, they'll realize I've been a fool. And they'll chase after something else. And the great question is what the something else is. 
probably go back to sleep and dream another dream unless they cross paths with someone with the truth. But we have to wait for them to wake up. And if they're not willing to receive it, Paul says, you know, I'm not here to debate the wisdom. It doesn't mean I can't. It means that I won't. It's not what I'm about. I have a singular message. And when people are ready to receive that message, when they have recognized their hunger and their thirst, their weakness, their, their, their stupidity, and yes, I did use the word stupidity, not ignorance. And I do know the difference. Then, they're in a condition that's ready to receive that message. But here in Isaiah, God says, you know, this is what it's going to be like and, and uh, this is what they're going to do. Their soul is still craving things. They've dreamed these things up. So now we told in verse 9, I'm still in Isaiah 29, pause and wonder. <laughs> oh, please, pause and wonder. Step back a little bit and think about the foolishness of this world. Blind yourselves and be blind. They are drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with intoxicating drink. For the Lord has poured out on you the spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, namely the prophets, and has covered your heads, namely the seers. God says, listen, at some point I'm going to remove my message. Let that settle on you a little bit. There comes a point where God removes His message. And He says the opportunity is gone. We talked about it last week, uh, Sunday night, um, about that aspect that there's a, a temporality, a temporalness to the message that we have. The time period that we have is limited to share Christ. And God says, you know, there's going to come a time when they won't be able to find the truth because... I'm going to put out a spirit of deep sleep and everyone's going to believe the lie, Thessalonians tells us, and we're going to find that they're not going to be prophets. They're not going to be seers. Nobody's going to be telling you, thus says the Lord. No one will come to you and say, thus says the Lord. It'll be gone. That time is coming. And so our prayer is for the opportunity to share Christ. And uh, it, and it's kind of interesting to see how he portrays this here and bring a book to a man who is literate and the man says, I can't read it because it's sealed. And you're going to bring the same book to an illiterate man and it says, read it, it says, I can't read. And I fear that for many of us, we are trying to press the gospel in places where it won't go. But we're trying to do it by men's wisdom. We cannot convince men of truth who are still in their dream world. I know that there's an entire area of Christianity called apologetics, where it's the defense of the faith. Um, but what apologetics has really become, and it really it, it's been this way for some time, um, has been this this uh, seeking to be evangelistic through these debates. Um, and frankly, the only ones you're going to reach in that are the ones who are reachable without the debate. Let me say that again. The only ones you're going to reach in a debate are the ones who are reachable without a debate. That is, they just need to hear the truth. No one gets debated into the kingdom of God. No one. Why? 
Have you ever tried to insert yourself into somebody's dream? It doesn't work. And it's not appreciated if you could figure out a way to make it work. Now we come in to verse 13 of Isaiah, and I want you to listen very carefully. Inasmuch as these people draw near me with their mouths, honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. Therefore, now we get to the why of the verse that Paul quotes. Therefore, because even among my own people, their heart isn't really for me. Why do we pick up the Why do we think we can pick up the wisdom of the world and convince the world of the wisdom of God through it? What is in our hearts that keeps us from focusing our attention on the Gospel? That there is some better way than what Paul had to convince people to become saved. And yet we do it all the time. What is in our hearts that thinks that somehow we have a better way than what Christ said? To declare His truth to the nations. To share the Gospel of the cross, the resurrection, and the forgiveness of sins. We think we can improve on the Gospel of God and it's a lie. We have here Israel saying we're going to get people to fear the Lord, but we're not going to do it God's way. How are we going to get it to happen? Through the commandments of men. Powerful verse. God says, you want to use the wisdom of men to convince people to be afraid of me? Think about it for a little bit. And this comes in a wide, this is, there's a wide avenue here, okay? There's a big spectrum of ways of doing this. For the Jews, they created their own laws. They were outside of the law of God and say, if you break this law, which wasn't really law of God, then we're going to count you guilty of breaking the interior law behind the hedge. We call them those hedge laws that the Pharisees and the priests and everyone else was creating. And they counted those higher than the law of God. This is what Christ condemned as hypocritical among the Pharisees and Sadducees of his day. But we find it in other avenues and places around us as well where we are simply, you know, if we could just pass a law against abortion, we could really stop the world from killing children. Really? you got a better plan than God then. We are convinced that political engagement is going to solve these things. And if we pass laws and we put enough teeth to those laws that we can get people to stop doing evil. Really? The Bible says that the law points to sin. doesn't stop it. doesn't stop it. But you see, we're convinced that we can resolve these issues politically. We're convinced that we can, if we could just engage the social and rebuild the social fabric of our culture, that that alone is enough. 
And I know many of you are watching Courageous, and, and I, we watched it this week with my family, and I appreciate so much their prerequisite. If you don't have the Lord, it doesn't work. And the gospel is there. I mean, I'll, it's, you can't avoid it. Um, but what I fear that many Christians are going to come to that and say, well, if we can just reestablish the men's role in the home, that that will fix the social fabric of our world. It will not in and of itself do that. Which I think the movie tried to say by saying, first you have to have Christ. And so here's a man who didn't have Christ, who signed the social contract and violated it. Why not? Because he's violating every other contract in his life. So what's another one? And because he doesn't have a right relationship with God. So he ends up in prison in the movie. As a dirty cop. Well, we can't just re-establish, and there are several Christians out there who are doing this, psychologists and others who are trying to, to reconnect our social fabric, but they fail to talk about Christ. Gary Smalley is probably the, one of the biggest ones that does that and, and uh, wants to heal marriages. Well, I don't want marriages to heal unless they are healed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ first. When husband and wife submit themselves to Christ, now I can work on their marriage. What our society needs is not for marriages to be strong. It needs individuals in marriages to be submitted to Christ. And these are just some of the examples, and there are a lot of them. And, and, and we're going to have um, David Cranell here from Answers in Genesis. And again, we can try to engage the world and try to scientifically prove to them that creation happened and that evolution is a farce. We can do that. I mean, we're, it, Paul here doesn't say that he's incapable of engaging the world in their wisdom. What he's saying is that it's foolhardy. There's no value in it. Ultimately, it becomes this war of words. He says, fundamentally, it's about Christ. And AIG goes back and talks about the roots of evolution and what's happened to our social fabric since we introduced that concept, um, which, by the way, was well before uh, the 60s. Um, and I, I would challenge you to go out there and read some classics like The Legend of Seawolf and things like that, that we discover that, that without men being different than animals, we're just brutes, then we'll act like it. Surprise. We act like brutes. Is the solution to go back and, and try to undo creation or undo evolutionary teaching in our society? Can't be done. It cannot be done. Why? Because creation demands that you accept God. Until we hit that root in their life, which is the only the gospel can touch, you'll never convince them of the truth about origins. And, and again, we could just keep compartmentalizing and break it all the way down. We could talk about the financial sector. We could talk about, you know, and, and fundamentally, the wisdom of men gets them nowhere. But they're in a dream. And Christ says, you know what the problem is, is when my people start to think that we can enforce godliness on a society that isn't right with God by making commandments, making laws. By laws of men, we can make people fear the Lord. No, you can't. And you can't in your home either, by the way. Your children will not grow up to be good citizens just because you carry a big stick. 
paddle with holes, preferably. Yes, do we need disciplined homes? Yes. What do we need in our homes? We need godly parents that teach God's Word and live it in front of their kids. Because we need our children to accept Christ as their Savior. That is their only hope. It's the only hope of our society. But yet we are convinced that we could go at this the way the Jews went at it by doing their own laws because God's aren't quite good enough. God's message of the cross isn't quite sufficient to engage the world and so I'm going to engage the world on their terms and as soon as we do that, you've just walked away from the power and the wisdom. You've walked into the weakness and foolishness of the world. You have entered the dream state and nothing can be done for them there. You must call them out of their dream to reality. By talking about the demands of a holy, righteous God, you're going to have to face a judge and get out of your dream world and think, what if your dream is a dream? Then what? We call them to the cross of Jesus Christ. And in this context, God says, I'm going to make the wisdom of their wives going to perish. The understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. And then it says, whoa. And whenever the Bible says, whoa, you better go, whoa. Because it's bad when God says, whoa. What does he say in verse 15? Woe to those who seek deep to hide their counsel far from the Lord and their works are in the dark. They say, who sees us, who knows us? Surely you have things turned around. Isn't that great? I love the Bible. Surely you have things turned around. You're all mixed up. You got, you got it reversed. He's not talking to the world. He's talking to the people of God. It says, shall a potter be esteemed as the clay? Shall a thing made say to him who made it, he did not make me? Or shall the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? You really think you can do it better than God? Do you think you can improve upon his plan? Upon his command? He did not command us to go debate the world. He did not command us to go look at the world and try to reach them through their own foolishness. Rather, we call them to what they call foolishness, what they call weakness, and we invite them to it. Come be fool with me. Once we come to that point of submission and recognize my dream isn't satisfying me, it's an illusion. I still have the spiritual hunger in me. As, much as, I, as long as they're denying that hunger, they're still in their dream, you're not going to touch them. You're not going to penetrate them. You need to be an example of them. You need to love them. You need to pray for them. Um, but your message isn't going to penetrate them as long as they're in their dream state and their illusion that this is satisfying them because the fact is it's not. They're, they're just pretending to be. One day they'll wake up and that's what you're praying for, watching for and ready for. And then you're ready to introduce Christ. And now the cross can have an effect. And so they, some do believe. And so when Paul asks back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, let's go back there, where's the wise, where's the scribe, where's the disputer of this age? God has made foolishness out of the wisdom of this world. We can look at them and say, well, they were fools back then, and yet we become much like them when we start abandoning how God wants us to do things and look to the world to see how we ought to be doing things. Oh, we would be the radical Christians God calls us to. And then, and by the way, that means the world's going to call you absolute fools. And then, 
have an opportunity to share the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God in verse 21 and 22 really point to something that we see extensively in Romans. It's very comparable to Romans chapter 1 where it talks about that in creation um, all the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen, um, that they are not hidden, that you can you can figure some things out about the existence of God from creation. Um, there, It's there, but here it is. It says, instead of... Um, Recognizing, it says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom, that is their own wisdom, did not know God. Instead of looking at those things and appreciating the wisdom and the, the existence and the power and the personality of God, they looked at those things in their own wisdom and figured out a different way, an end around God. They didn't recognize Him, or that is not that they didn't, couldn't, they saw Him but didn't, but rather they, they chose not to identify Him as God. They did not know God. It pleased God through the foolish of the message preached to save those who believe. And so, here they are. They don't recognize God by looking at these things because they're looking at it not from as wisdom of God, but as the wisdom of men. And so then we abruptly enter their dream state, their illusion, with a powerful truth. There is a holy, holy, holy God you're going to have to answer to. And you can't because you're all guilty. Because every one of you has sinned, period. And when as soon as they say, but, 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 just say denial. Because that's all it is. They're still in their dream. When they recognize I'm a horrible sinner, I'm in trouble, now what? We introduce the cross. When they believe, when they trust in Christ as their Savior, now, all that discussion, all that evidence, all that uh, uh, development and apologetics now are ready to be introduced in their life. Now we can discuss and train in family life, in science, in um, finances and all those things, we we can we can begin now to develop those the wisdom of God to them. But until they submit to this fundamental truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, um, all this other stuff is going to go shoo, shoo, shoo. to them. It's going to be oh, you're an idiot because they don't get it. They can't get it. God's word says that they're in a dream. They can't get it. They can't figure it out. God has removed it from the capacity of them to understand those truths. We can sit there and shout and yell. We can mount up piles of evidence. We could get all the, all, and it's great, some of the evidence, you know, the big thing now is they came out this research that, um, oh, self-esteem doesn't work. I think I said something about that. And it's been in the paper in a couple other articles since, you know, the self-esteem model um, is a failure and people with self-esteem become bullies. People with self-esteem um, disrespect their teachers. People with self-esteem are ignorant because they don't think they need to learn anything because they think so highly of themselves. And now our whole educational model is supposed to be confronted with something that they have been denying for years. That's right in the Bible that loving yourself is a sin. How long will it take to penetrate it? So you can pile up all that evidence, but you walk with that evidence into school and see what they'll tell you. They won't listen. 
Oh, no, the problem is they think too low of themselves. Baloney. But it doesn't matter how much proof you have. Because the wisdom of God is foolishness to them without Christ. But once we receive Christ, now that wisdom is ready to be received. And, and it's not that we can't, don't have any evidence. not that our faith is irrational because it isn't. Not at all. It's irrational to them because they're in a dream. <laughs> they're an illusion. They're walking in a make-believe world in their mind that they have created for themselves. They're not ready to hear any of that. And so what is it that we penetrate them with? The Gospel, the Gospel, the Gospel, the Gospel, and the Gospel again. Once they believe, now, now the wisdom of God is ready to be received. Once they've accepted the foolish thing of God, which is the cross. Once I have subordinated myself to the foolish thing of God, I can begin to discover the wisdom of God. But we are trying to put the cart before the horse. And we are trying to engage the world and apologetics is really defending the faith and it's not an evangelistic tactic at all. It's really to strengthen believers against the attacks of Satan to come in the world to come in and make you doubt your faith. So apologetics is for to defend my faith. I can defend it. And it's not really evangelistic in nature. Now, does that mean no one has ever been reached by apologetic activity? Of course not. But my contention is the same. It wasn't the apologetic activity that saved them. They were already willing to receive the message of the cross. So when we come to Paul's statement here that these things are all foolishness, they didn't know God, um, the Jews want a sign. Greeks have to after wisdom. But verse 23 needs to be that power of the church. We preach Christ crucified. It's offensive to the Jews. It's stupid to the Greeks. They call it foolishness. But once you're on this side, and you have responded to God's call for salvation. You are among those who choose to believe, which we found uh, back here in verse 21. Um, to those who believe, um, now we have, we're on this side of those who believe. And in verse 24, the emphatic word there is not the word called, but the word themselves. To yourselves, to those who believe, who are called, to them you're, you're, you yourselves know this because you're on this side of the calling. You have been, you have responded to the calling of God and received Him as Savior and Lord. Now you're on this side of that calling. You yourselves, um, you're both Jews and you're both Greeks. Um, you recognize that the cross, the foolish thing of God, is His power. That the foolish thing of God is His wisdom. And we see that in the cross there is power and there is wisdom. Once we have responded to the call of God and we are on that side, whether you're a Jew or Greek, doesn't matter. Hallelujah. You can say that, by the way. It's okay. It won't throw me off very much. I might smile, but that's about it. Okay? Uh, once we're on this side of the calling, now I comprehend. There is great power. There is great wisdom in this foolish thing of God called the cross. 
Now I can begin to develop this in my life. And now I can appreciate it. And one of the things he says is remind yourself of uh, this fact that now, on this side of your calling, you have discovered that the foolish thing of God is wiser than men. And if the foolish thing of God is wiser than men, then why are we trying to use the wisdom of men to reach men? Why are we taking a weaker course when we have the most powerful course available to us, and that is the cross? Preach Christ. The weakness of God, the weak thing of God, is literally what it says. The weak thing of God, which is also the cross, is stronger than men. At the point that God seemed the most powerless. At that point, God is still stronger than men. Men could do nothing to him. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. God gave himself up. Then Paul wants to remind the Corinthians about themselves. I want to remind you who you were. I like the NIV's translation of verse 26 a little better. The NIV translates this, When you were called, brethren, not many of you were wise. And this is really what Paul's trying to get to. He's saying, listen, think back to before you got saved. Think back to before you were a believer. Remember what you were like before that? Did you become a Christian because you were so smart? Did you become a Christian because you were so powerful? Did you become a Christian because you were so mighty, so uh, influential? Think back to your salvation, folks. And he, he tells them, think back to it. Not many wise. <laughs> you weren't, not many of you were very wise and they still weren't. Um, not many were mighty, not many were noble, you weren't, you weren't of good birth. Let's go back and really contemplate for the Christian community. Let's go back and think about, before I got saved, what was I like? What, did I get saved just because I was smart enough to get saved? No. Did I get saved because someone beat me in a debate? No. Did I get saved because I was strong enough to accept God? I had the courage to do so. No. Think back before you got saved what was required of you. Oh no, you weren't wise. You were miserable. You weren't strong. God says it's when you come to Him on your knees and you have realized, you have woken up from the illusions of your own mind's making, and you have woken up to the fact that you are hungry, you are thirsty, you are, you, are, you are empty. My soul is craving things that I can't find. And God fills that. He says, think about it. Not many of you were of that condition before your calling. Remember when you were called? And if we think back to it, 
our own salvation, did someone debate me in to Christ? Did someone create a law and therefore I got saved because my dad said I had to? Is that what happened? Is that how you got saved? Because your parents created a law that said you had to? Or you get kicked out? (laughs) Think about it. Was it the commandment of men by which you got saved? Was it by the nobility of your birth? Because your birthright? That you got saved? No. None of us came to Christ that way. So why would we go to the world thinking to reach them that way? And why in the church would be we interested in those pre-salvific foolishnesses? Well, we thought we were wise back then, but we were idiots. We were fools. We were miserable. We were empty. Now, with the truth, we can glorify God in our life. And this is the message we preach. And this is the message that should be elevated in our church. And if that message of the cross is our singularity, is our single message, is our single hope, it's our single purpose, it's our, it's our single drive, is this gospel. And we recognize that we've all come to God in Christ not because I was smart enough to figure out that I should get saved, because really my intelligence kept getting in the way, if anything, because I kept trying to dream up my own excuses for my sin instead of just submitting them. Once we have Christ as a center pin, unity natural follows because we want to glorify the one who delivered us. And we recognize that I did nothing. And so Paul later says that um, we do all this so that no flesh should glory in his presence. I can't glory. I look back as a 10-year-old coming to Christ and I go, well... What do I have going for me? Let's see here. I had a miserable home life because I was fighting my parents every day. Um, I had a miserable life at school. What do I have to offer God? What what wonderful thing about Kirk brought made him figure out to get saved? And you know what I come down to? Nothing. So I stand before you and say, thank God for His grace that someone came to me with one message. Now, the message is, you're a sinner. And God's a Savior. Let that be our message of our church and of your life. And let our evangelism be what Paul described his evangelism to be. I preach Christ, crucified. You think it's stupid? Well, one day you'll wake up. But I'm going to keep preaching it because it's the truth.